New research gives new insight into where and when the novel coronavirus emerged. Seeing how this virus spreads, you realize that this isn't the fault of a particular geographic region or racial identity. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Students look back on a year of virtual learning. It was really like a big change because first you were in school and now you're like on a computer all day, every day, Monday through Friday. What students have gone through and what learning looks like going forward. Plus, a look at the arts and culture scene for this weekend as businesses start to open. That's ahead on Midday Edition. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. From potential treatments to how it affects the human body, the COVID-19 virus has been characterized by how rapidly our understanding of it has evolved. Now a new report from the UC San Diego School of Medicine could change what we know about the origins of COVID-19 and how long it's been circulating among humans. Joining me to discuss this research is senior author Joel Wertheim, an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at the UC San Diego School of Medicine. Joel, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Your research indicates that the novel coronavirus was circulating months before originally thought. What pushed you and your team to further investigate the timeline of this virus? Well, there were lots of reports Uh, of the virus outside of China in the fall of 2019, and even actually going back uh, into early 2019 from all over the world. And what we wanted to answer was how far back was it biologically possible for this virus to have been in China and for us not to have seen it and for it not to have left its mark in the uh, genetic material of the virus itself. So that day of mid-October that we say, that's really an upper bound. It could have happened after that, but we really wanted to put an upper limit on how long the virus could have been circulating in China before it was discovered. And what are the major implications of these findings? Well, for one thing, it tells us that this virus was likely around for a while before it was discovered, which just highlights the difficulty in detecting highly transmissible pathogens that don't have exceptionally high mortality rates. One of the most surprising findings that came out of our study was that when we tried to simulate the beginnings of the coronavirus pandemic, the majority 
of our simulated epidemics went extinct. In seven out of 10 tries, we were unable to generate a pandemic, which means that this virus, more often than not, would have gone extinct on its own. Why do you think this particular coronavirus became a global pandemic? The most nefarious thing about SARS-CoV-2 is that it can transmit during the asymptomatic period. So we weren't able to contain it because people got on planes and trains and crossed borders, uh, even with no evidence of infection. And by the time we realized that, uh, the virus had already, already firmly ensconced itself uh, across the globe. How does knowing the timeline of the virus help us understand its origin? Well, in the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about it coming uh, from the market, meaning that that market in Wuhan was the place of cross-species transmission. Now, knowing that there are earlier cases in December in Wuhan that aren't linked to the market and the genetic ancestor predating those, and then our analysis says, well, it could have even been around for a couple of weeks or even up to a month before that time point tells us that we don't really have a good idea of where the first person who got infected was. We have a good idea where the first big clusters were, but those first people before you had large super spreading events uh, still remain a mystery. In order to come to this conclusion, your team used something called molecular clock evolutionary analysis. Uh, can you explain what this technique is and how it works? Yeah, so the molecular clock is a really important tool for investigating uh, the history of viruses and their transmission. Basically, it allows us to count up mutations that separate viruses sampled over time, in this case in China, and by counting up those mutations over time and seeing how quickly they happen, we can estimate the age of a virus that we never saw, the ancestor of, say, all of the viruses that were in China. And can this data be used to prevent the spread of highly transmissible diseases in the future? Well, we're using this technique right now to track uh, the uh, variants of SARS-CoV-2 around the world, looking at their emergence and spread. So it's uh, as important to the beginning of the pandemic as it is to today. Uh, you know, the origins of this virus have been politicized with racist rhetoric, notably from former President Trump, followed by an increase in violence and racism against Asian Americans and Pacific Islander Americans. As a scientist, I wonder if you have some thoughts on how focusing on the science can help us overcome the racist blaming that's taken place in the last year. Absolutely. It's quite unfortunate. And Seeing how this virus spreads and how readily it spread, you realize that this isn't the fault of a particular geographic region or people has really taken over the world and doesn't respect national borders or racial identity. It's also important how we've named this virus SARS-CoV-2 um, after uh, the type of virus it is and the type of illness it causes. We used to name viruses uh, after locations. And there's been a concerted move away from that in the field, um, partly to respect uh, that viruses aren't the fault of one particular region or people. One early example of corrective naming was with the Sinombre virus, which is a hantavirus found in the Four Corners region. And in order to avoid stigmatizing any given population, uh, they gave it the no-name virus rather than uh, identifying a particular geography or uh, people that lived there. 
And for you, from everything that you know about viruses, is this one acting like a normal natural virus? Yes. uh, I have no specific reason to suspect that this virus came out of a lab. Coronaviruses jump into humans all the time. And this is a very unfortunate, but apparently uh, natural phenomenon that we as humans are going to have to increasingly prepare to live with. I've been speaking with Joel Wertheim, an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at the UC San Diego School of Medicine. Joel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Distance learning during the pandemic has only worsened the achievement gap between students from marginalized communities and those growing up in privilege. But could there be some long-term benefits to this experience? As part of our series, Pandemic Life, One Year On, KPBS reporter Joe Hong explores COVID-19's lasting impact on the school day. It was really like a big change because first you were in school and now you're like on a computer all day, every day. Monday through Friday. Luis is a 7th grader currently attending Rancho Del Rey Middle School in Chula Vista. Like the vast majority of students in San Diego County, he spent the past year attending school through a computer screen. But he's also struggled with the added stress of being separated from his family for most of the year. His mother, who previously lived as an undocumented immigrant in San Diego, has lived in Tijuana since 2016. They've barely seen each other during the pandemic. Not being with my mom for 6 months since like 2016 too uh, would be uh, hard for me because I don't have my mom next to me, like, so we can go out, go places, go shopping. Luis has been living with family friends since 2016, but even with their support, his grades have plummeted during distance learning. Luis and his guardians insist he's doing all the work, but when he turns it in, his teachers aren't counting it. Well, right now I'm not doing too good because they're giving me F's and D's for all my work that I turn in. And they're saying that they're missing and that they're not turned in when I saw that I turned them and I turned them in. Luis has tried for months to get his grades fixed, but with no success. Experts say Luis's experience speaks to a huge underlying problem with distance learning. The lack of face-to-face contact between students and teachers has created, in many cases, a lack of trust and at least the perception that educators only care about the gradebook and not the struggles of students. Christopher Nellum is the Interim Executive Director at Education Trust West, an education think tank based in the Bay Area. He says rebuilding personal connections needs to be the top priority when in-person learning resumes. Sure, we have to be focused on the academics, but in order for young people to be successful, they have to feel whole and feel taken care of uh, and feel like the folks that they're around who they're engaging with care about them. It's also become clear that distance learning has widened an already large achievement gap between low-income students of color and their wealthier white peers. Kate Chasen lives in Tierra Santa, less than 20 miles up the highway from Luis, but the realities during the pandemic have been worlds apart. I don't even know what to play, honestly, but yeah. Kate is a junior at Canyon Hills High School, formerly known as Sarah High School. School has been stressful for her, but she's maintained high grades. She's also been able to continue her cello lessons virtually. Yeah, luckily I've been doing okay and getting my work in, and I've had straight A's thus far. So. Kate says she wants to study public policy in college, and she's even gotten involved in activism work, raising awareness for teen mental health. She said her future goals have kept her motivated. I know it's kind of cheesy, but like the college search. Um, so I'm looking at really competitive schools 
and you need competitive grades in order to get into those schools. One expert says advantaged and motivated students like Kate have fared better in the virtual classroom, but only as long as they have access to technology and a stable environment. Minjuan Wang is a professor of learning design and technology at San Diego State University. She said a silver lining to the pandemic experience is teachers have become more proficient at using technology. She sees an opportunity for them to use their new skill sets to better help struggling students even after schools reopen. I think after the pandemic, teach some teachers might go into hybrid mode if that's a possibility and they would definitely they can they would definitely reach out to students who need more help by having a zoom session or any other online conferencing and while kate has done well during distance learning she struggled with the social isolation and anxiety but she's completely aware of her privilege i already had a laptop going into the pandemic my family has wi-fi that has good bandwidth so three of us can be on a zoom call at a time like um, even just th like my parents can come home at the end of the night and I can be and I can be comfortable knowing that they are making enough money for us to survive. As schools across San Diego County schedule to reopen, Kate says she and her classmates will work to make sure schools have the mental health resources to support students as they return to the classroom. Joe Hong, KPBS News. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. If you've been missing in-person art, this weekend's arts and culture picks are a feast for the senses, even smell. Joining me is KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans with some options for finding art and music this weekend. Hi, Julia. Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. So now that we have returned to the Red Tier, San Diego Museum of Art finally reopens for the public tomorrow. What's a work you'd recommend we check out? Yeah, there's actually a new work by contemporary artist Colleen Smith. It's immersive and includes a, a video piece, and it takes up the entirety of one of those upstairs rooms in the museum. Smith took as her inspiration an influential 1602 work by Juan Sanchez Cotan. It's called Still Life with Quince, Cabbage, Melon, and Cucumber. It's one of those hyper-realistic food still lifes, but Smith was inspired by the way the realness kind of melted away the more you looked at it. I spoke to Colleen Smith in July. And the kind of impossibility of the painting, because you can't see very much, you don't see where the string is hanging, even what the light source is, let alone where it is. And so the shadows stop making sense if you look really closely. 
And another thing that struck her was the angles of the shelf. They're also impossible. And this, this heavy black void in the back. So she constructed in her studio to the best of her ability, the shelf that Cotan had painted for the for her video. And she was also inspired by Cotan's highly detailed studio inventory he left after he joined a monastery. And it made her want to create a, a work that documented her own studio in some way, recording the day-to-day -day sounds and shadows there. There's also women's voices singing about nature. It's not something with a plot per se. You can spend just a few minutes with the video or you can spend the full half hour of it. And Catan's painting is also installed in the room. The exhibition opened March 14th of last year, so it's had a full year of not really getting a lot of visitors. And it's definitely a work to see in person. San Diego Museum of Art is open to the public with COVID precautions, of course, 10 to 5 on Saturday, noon to 5 on Sunday, and Colleen Smith's installation will be on view through September. Uh, and now for some Afro-Cuban jazz. Tell us about the live in-person show Queen Bee's Art and Culture Center is presenting tonight. Yeah, so Queen Bee's is hosting an outdoor concert, and it features Queen Bee's music director, saxophonist Charlie Arbalaz, and friends. He'll perform Afro-Cuban jazz with trombonist Matt Hall, keyboardist Irving Flores, bassist Will Lyle, drummer Johnny Steele, and percussionist Charlie Chavez. Arbalaz, who hosts their regular jazz botanica jam session on Tuesday nights, he takes inspiration from the likes of Dizzy Gillespie, Chano Pozzo, Mongo Santa Maria, and, and more. And we're listening to Charlie Arbalaz performing at Queen Bee's last year. taking over the parking lot next to their North Park venue for this outdoor show. But you can also buy a ticket to live stream the event from home. All right, Charlie Abalaz performs Afro-Cuban jazz at Queen Bee's in North Park tonight at 7 p.m. Best Practice Gallery in Barrio Logan has a new solo exhibition on view from a Tecate-based artist. Tell us about this. So Chantal Peñalosa is an interdisciplinary artist. She lives in Tecate. And this exhibition's called There's Something About the Weather of This Place. So you can imagine it's really rooted in place, this specific place of the United States-Mexico border. And Peñalosa coated some canvases with fresh white paint and set them outside to collect falling ash from wildfires. She also made a photography work capturing changes to the cloud formations that would have happened in the exact duration of a border crossing. And she's even created a scent to diffuse in the gallery that evokes the smells of a border crossing. So hold all your smell-o-vision jokes. You have to go and check this one out in person. And I think that the centerpiece of this, this show is a looped performance work. It's a video called Sobre la Avenida Mexico, where Penulosa sits in a chair on a rooftop right at the edge of the border. It's the very last street in Tecate, and she is eye level with a border patrol truck. You're kind of taken inside her mind as she narrates that experience. <laughs> <laughs> 
And Chantal Penalosa is on view at Best Practice in Barrio Logan through April 17th. Gallery hours are Saturdays from 11 to 2 or by appointment. And finally, the Spreckles Organ Society is celebrating a full year of virtual performances as well as 336 years of Bach. Tell us about this special performance. Yeah, so civic organist Raul Prieta Ramirez used to play a live concert every Sunday afternoon in Balboa Park at the Organ Pavilion, and he's been recording weekly streaming concerts instead during the entire pandemic, and he also does a bilingual live chat. They record these in secret so as not to attract a crowd to Balboa Park, which I kind of love. It's like pipe organ spy intrigue. And in addition to that mystery, they this week they're also celebrating Johann Sebastian Bach's birthday. Ramirez will perform some of Bach's most beloved works, including the iconic Toccata and Fugue in D minor. The Spreckles Organ Weekly Streaming Concert is Sunday at 2 p.m. online. For more arts events or to sign up for Julia's weekly KPBS Arts newsletter, go to kpbs.org arts. I've been speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer, Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Jade. Have a good weekend. You too.